edition of Day Unplugged. It's Tuesday, 15th of September 2020. As ever, Mark Pender is across the pond stateside, and I'm Jeremy Hawkins in London. The Forex markets are back in focus again, with both the European Central Bank and the Bank of Canada unusually making mention of the strength of their respective local currency to otherwise fairly unremarkable policy meetings last week. At the same time, the not-so-great British pound was getting hammered as investors reacted to the latest UK government proposal on Brexit, which, if passed by Parliament, even the Johnson administration itself has acknowledged would break international law. Now, the current strength of euro and the Canadian dollar is as much as anything else a reflection of US dollar weakness. So, Mark, since we have an FOMC meeting about to kick off tomorrow, yeah, Mr. Yeah. will have anything to say about the state of a greenback. Indeed, no, I mean, do no. you think they will a lower dollar as a means of helping growth and boosting inflation? No, they will not. They will not mention. You're, you're talking about Jerome Powell. Yeah. Tomorrow, uh, yeah, no, it's going to be a non- a non-answer. The question is certain to be posed, and the answer is certain to be uh, a complete uh, sidestep. So, uh, you know, their uh, affectation is that the currency, the strength of the dollar, the weakness of the dollar is of no um, matter in their deliberations. In any case, uh, as you say, the weakness is playing in uh, to their hands anyway, which is try to stimulate the uh, the, the U.S. economy, which needs it. And... Um, uh, so I would say that uh, uh, that that is an absolutely uh, sure thing. I don't know what exactly news can be made tomorrow. Uh, um, it's um, uh, you know the Fed is completely um, you know uh, has opened the floodgates to the maximum mm-hmm. degree, and with the average inflation uh, yield curve control. Yield curve control. Well, about they that. have. Well, they could talk about that, but that that would be in the something that we're looking into. And there, you know, uh, uh, some of the uh, commentary from Fed officials are that it doesn't, it, it, it hasn't really worked when it's been applied uh, in a reliable way. So, I mean, they might talk about that, but I don't think that would be a significant policy issue. Even if they did say, you know. Uh, there's positive feedback among the members, something like that, he might say. If he did, I'm not sure what that would that would do for the markets. Um, but uh, as you know, I was saying the inflation averaging is the big event between the last meeting in July. And he might give us, uh, Powell might give us uh, some details on how much overinflation, uh, 2%, they might tolerate yeah. for how long of a period maybe that might come into the conversation and that could move the markets perhaps but question um, on that i mean do you think this uh, probably i guess your answer is going to be no but this the switch to the uh, the average inflation targeting do you think there have any implications for how they present the updated economic forecasts or is it neither here nor there uh i wouldn't think that it, uh, unless uh the implication is lower rates and more QE for a longer period of time that could increase their forecasts for um, GDP and perhaps inflation. I'm not sure it would have uh, that much of a bearing. Um, the quarterly um, uh, forecasts aren't due in this um, in this meeting here in any case. But that is something to look for to start seeing if there is a creep uh, creeping higher in the long range uh, inflation forecasts. I guess that would be a a, a possibility, uh, definitely.
Mm, okay. Um, just sticking with this dollar tack for the moment. Um, when I was growing up many, many, many moons ago, one reason why you used to have a, a weak dollar, this is going back to sort of you know, the 80s, North 90s type period, was that everyone used to say, oh, well, you've got the twin deficit. So you've got an expanding <laughs> current account deficit on one side. You've got a growing public sector deficit, government deficit on the other. A plus B equals got to be bad news for the dollar. Has the Fed got any such worries? Not as so much with regards to the dollar per se, but the way these imbalances are steadily growing. You know, the that is the the. It, I'm not even sure it's been um, uh, brushed under the carpet. It just, I guess, it's just faded into um, you know uh, into unimportance given the need to immediately stimulate the economy but the uh, deficits are enormous uh, uh, the trade deficit is you know a, a persistent post-world war II uh, feature of the US economy but uh, the exploding um, uh, fiscal deficit which is in, has been another f- uh, feature of the US economy it, it you know has just taken off uh, dramatically over three trillion dollars going into with one month left on their um, on the government fiscal year but no that has not been a, a topic of prudence <laughs> prudence hasn't been one of the things that um, is in you know is really discussed it's you know it's like almost Powell saying not even thinking about even thinking about lowering rates and yeah. I and they want more fiscal stimulus the central bankers have been calling for it they're desperate really because they're out of their own tools and part of the story for the central for the US central bank in the second half of this or the, of, of this uh, uh, enormous year is to find help somewhere else and I getting back to the dollar if they can get a little help from that and certainly US trade needs it um, then uh, I think so be it uh, and then uh, certainly importing a little inflation wouldn't hurt either uh, but we did get to it's funny I should say that you know we did get uh, import uh, export prices today here in the US and they showed a little life uh, not too much uh, it's it's really kind of I'm looking at these inflation numbers and they just seem to be moving along basically where oil oil is really your guide uh, it's been improving and that's been lifting everything up but it's still uh, it, it's still weak um, and uh, so I mean uh, inflation is, is still, uh, you know, underwater, uh, or it's still, you know, uh, uh, below the 2%, uh, sizably below the Fed's 2% goal, our, our initial target. I'm not sure what we should call that anymore, um, or long-range target. Uh, but is it going to continue to rise? I don't know. I mean, I think really the final gist of tomorrow's meeting, FOMC, will will be how uh, COVID or how the contagion, the pandemic, is unfolding. If it, if it's unfolding favorably, that'll be a plus. And if it's not, there the Fed is kind of held hostage. Okay, fair enough. Oh, before we leave the US, I should also ask you, so you mentioned it before in your, in, your, in your spiel, but how is this fiscal package going through Congress? Is there going to be one or is it going to be so small it doesn't make much difference anyway? Well, I think the latter uh, could be true, but uh, the last I read is that it is in, you know, uh, in desperate straits. So it doesn't look like there's going to be... Um, you know, uh, a, a confirmation or an agreement or a coming together uh, during, especially during the last next couple months of the election. Uh, and what does that mean for the U.S. economy? Uh, it's not good. I mean, we had industrial production today, and uh, the U.S. industrial production for August, and it's still um, it's dramatically slowing in its recovery. 
uh, and it is still, uh, you know, it, almost 10% below where it was in uh, February. So, and if at this rate of recovery, it's going to be well into next year at, at, at a roughly 1% rate of recovery per month now. That's not very much. I mean, we were 20%. Right? Yeah, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Now it's slowed fast, like kind of not quite, not as dramatically. Uh, that's more dramatic than I think the slowing we've seen in U- U.S. employment, but still. Oh, I have a question now about you. Now, we had a U.K. employment, and uh, we were talking uh, before the, or we were emailing uh, before our talk here, and um and I was, and you had mentioned that the employment report is not the most important indicator. I think that's what you said, and not the most important indicator in um, the UK. Now, the, for me, that's a little bit mysterious because, see, for the Fed, employment is their number one thing. So, um, yeah. So, it is the Bank of England is is employment their number one thing? And if it's not their number one thing, um, what? How do they met? What do they look at? Uh, for employment to see if um, their policy is working. Okay, well, of course, the Bank of England's remit, indeed, and the same as the ECB, and you can sort of really put them in, the, I suppose, in the, in the same bracket on this one, um, is to hit some kind of an inflation target. So 2% for the uh, the Bank of England and just shy of 2% for the ECB. Now, that's meant that, by and large, they've been concentrating very much upon those indicators they regard to, giving, be, to be giving them the best information about inflation trends. Now, that's not to say that either central bank has just completely ignored the employment or unemployment data, which we want to look at it in the past. But it has tended to mean they've looked at more things to do with demand. So particularly from what's going on with the likes of retail sales or from supply side in terms of the likes of industrial production. And crucially, more re- in more recent years, the likes of the PMI survey. And that's why I think when you look at, for example, when you go across to the Eurozone, uh, we get a monthly um, labour market report. Very little attention is paid to that. I mean, it comes out, it's quite late anyway, it's you know, a couple of months or so out of date by the time we actually get the thing. Um, but markets, by and large, tend to ignore it. For the UK, you tend to get more detail in that report. And so it's not really so much in the past, it's been the, the labour market data in terms of what's going on with employment or um, what's going on with unemployment or even vacancies. The focus has tended to be what's been happening to wages growth because wages directly feed into, into what's going on with inflation. However, I think because now when you look at most of the commentary coming out of both the ECB but in particular the Bank of England, they are now clearly, although it's strictly speaking, it's still target inflation, 2% or close to 2%. What they're most concerned about is what's going on in the real economy. And for the bank, as it made clear in its August Monetary Policy Committee meeting, is now attaching more weight than ever to the unemployment rate as some kind of measure of how much spare capacity is left in the UK economy. And clearly, the more spare capacity you have, potentially even the less upside pressure or indeed more downside pressure you have in terms of the absolute, absolute price level. So I think you know, as we go into Thursday, you will see in the bank's official communique a lot of talk about what's going on in the labour market. Um, and it's meant that the unemployment rate for the UK now, and this really is the ILO, the International Labour Organization, their definition. So in the UK, it still only stands at 4.1%. That's going to get increasing focus and it's going to get increasing focus even more because, as we talked about on previous podcasts, you know what's going to happen to the so-called job retention scheme, scheme this um, furloughing uh, program that the government's been operating both in the UK and across the water on the continent 
continental Europe, which has been helping to keep down the level of unemployment and hence the jobless rates. For the UK, it started to be phased out at the beginning of this month, but doesn't disappear altogether as currently scheduled until the end of October. So the current data are still being, is unemployment is being massaged down uh, by these schemes. But once we get through October, unless they come out and change the furloughing scheme, so they extend it in some shape or form, and have been called for at least some kind of targeted version of the furlough scheme to be introduced once we get probably into the fourth quarter, um, then we're going to see these unemployment rates probably you know, climb significantly. And that is going to have important implications, I think, for Bank of England policy. Well, so, well, well, well let's talk about the UK um, labor market report. So how should we re- We see the claim account unemployment rate, which is for the what this, that was for August. Yeah. And that I'm just looking at a graph here. Now that um, uh, spiked up about double from the four percent to the high double digits yep. uh, during the crisis now. But the ILO, <laughs> which is here for July, and I guess that's a moving average. Um, but still, it's for four or five, six months after the crisis, and it's still not moving. I mean, how how can we read that? It's dead flat at, at about. Well, it is. It, it, yeah, I mean, it is. Well, the problem with the in the old days, I mean, it used to be markets focused upon the claimant count because, um, as you mentioned, it's more up to date. So today's figure we had on the claimant count um, was, what, 7.6% up from 7.4%. Yeah, that is for August, and it's about as up to date as you're going to get on the UK um, un- uh, employment market or unemployment market. But for the ILO figures, uh, they, as you mentioned, it's a three-month moving average. So in this case, we have the three months, not even to August, there's only three months to July. So really, it's quite well out of date. And that period will very much reflect these furloughing schemes. But the problem with the claimant count is that they've made some changes to the definition whereby claimant count unemployment is no longer regarded as an official um, national statistic. Um, they, you, they call it an experimental dis, uh, statistic to be looked at alongside you know, all the other indicators we get on the labour market. Because for financial markets, you know, they still want to know the latest figures. So although most of the talk still tends to center around the lagging ILO measure, you know, people do look at what's going on with the claimant count, even if you can't trust it fully, and you certainly can't compare some of the numbers we have now with sort of a time series from a few years ago. But, you know, but, but the latest trend, people will still t- try to determine what's going on with the claimant figures. But, you know, mm-hmm. the bottom line to it is it's, it's quite a messy report now to try and to interpret. And because you've got these um, current support schemes helping to depress the numbers, the headline unemployment numbers, mm-hmm. yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens once we get the other side of October, if well, indeed well, you change the scheme by then. Let's turn back to uh, uh, central bank policy. Uh, for the Fed, um, in their genuine efforts over the last generation for transparency, uh, you know, and I say they open with employment. It's not inflation or it's not their most concern is um, not only employment, their opening concern consistently over the last half dozen years has been um, lower income employment. That's how they open up their conversations. So that's specifically what they're looking at. They're trying to. Um, so what, in order to do that, though, you need to have a trans or you need to have a an identifiable, easily um, uh, analyzed employment report that everyone can get a handle on good, bad, you know, uh, fast or slower, that everyone can get involved in understanding um, where uh, the central bank policy is going to go. So I guess the question I have then, and 
in Europe, when does labor, when, when Christine Lagarde has a conversation, when does labor pop in? Is it, is it a, a few sentences down or what? Yeah, it's normally we tend to get some way into the official statement because the opening paragraphs will typically be talking about what's been going on in terms of inflation developments. And then, of course, for what everyone seems forgotten about it these days, strictly speaking, the ECB, you know, it targets inflation, but it, ha- it keeps an eye on what's going on on the monetary developments as well. It used to have an official target for M3, which gradually over time got downgraded to a reference rate, as they call it now. But it tends to be they go through that and then they start moving into to the real economy world. So when we had Lagarde's um, press statement, um, a press conference, I should say, last week, you tend to get the preamble first about mainly about what's happening to inflation and whether policy is working or not and what's going on in the financial markets. And then, and she'd been talking for a fair while before she actually got round to updating their quarterly economic forecasts. So I think, you know, compared to the Fed, because you have, I mean, the Fed's remit is somewhat different, isn't it? You've got employment or unemployment kind of directly mentioned in terms of what the Fed is trying to achieve. Uh-huh. You don't have that for the UK. You don't have that for the ECB. The whole thing, as it currently stands, and of course, the ECB is undertaking the review at the moment, but the whole thing's written in terms of inflation. Hence, they tend to do that bit first and then you know, sort of segue into how the rest of the economy is performing later on. Well, interesting. If this crisis doesn't test that, I mean, looking at the ILO UK employment rate, there's been no effect from the crisis, but uh, there certainly has been in the US. Uh, and um, if there is and ends up in your concern and in, in your writing is that uh, there, there's a, a significant risk that as these schemes, um, support schemes roll off, there's a significant risk that unemployment is going to climb. And I guess the ECB and the BOE have been lucky not to have, um, you know, been in a in a in a phase of a catastrophic. We had a catastrophic loss of jobs temporarily, but still, 15 or so million, 10, 15 million people still out of work. That's a lot of people. Um, so I, I, you know, that might test <laughs> their patience. How about the reporters? What, what's the first question they ask? Well, I think at the moment the first question on everyone's, on most of the media's lips currently is, what's going to happen to the furlough scheme? Because you mentioned, I mean, really, just going back to what we were talking about earlier, the key reason why unemployment in Europe is, I'm not sure if low is the right word, but let's say as low as it is, um, is because it's been supported by government schemes. Now, some countries like Germany and France have already announced that in some shape or form, their particular national furlough schemes will be extended going into next year or even beyond that. The UK's furlough scheme, though, is still scheduled to end at the end of October. And this is is the question I think there's been so much talk coming out of industry be it the retail side the industrial side you, know, you, you can name almost any company you want warning that once a furlough scheme is taken away they are simply going to have to let staff go so there's serious worries about a wall of unemployment which is just hiding around the corner so for the media it's the case not so much for the Bank of England it's directed at the government saying well look are you going to extend the furlough scheme because otherwise you know, we're going to see you know, re- real problems. Um, 
So I think you know, for the Bank of England, they are, they are quite clearly hoping that we will get some kind of extension of the furlough scheme for a lot of members, I think. But I should say that uh, the Andrew Bailey, the Bank of England governor, came out, oh, was it two or three weeks ago now, I think it was, giving uh, the nod of approval to the Chancellor when he reaffirmed that this furlough scheme will be ended. So I think, you know, the bottom line is if we don't, if we do see the furlough scheme ended as currently planned, then it's extremely likely that we'll see monetary policy in some shape or form in the UK uh, being eased again. And that then is going to raise the possibility at least of interest rates going negative. At the moment, the talk coming out of the bank is that they're still looking into the relative virtues of taking interest rates down even further. I'm bank rate in the UK, so the benchmark interest rate currently stands at just 0.10%. It's never been into negative territory before. And it seems that from some of the research papers and stuff they put out, there's this kind of sense that at the moment, if they came out and reduced interest rates still further, the hit to bank profitability and the efficient workings of financial markets would be more than a negative than any kind of plus you might get in terms of stimulating the real economy. So I think for the moment, although it's not a done deal, negative interest rates in the UK are off the table. But again, if it's the case a furlough scheme isn't isn't extended and the economy falls off a cliff, then the bank presumably is going to feel obliged to do something. Do, do the bankers there, the central bankers, uh, uh, actively call like they do here uh, for – this is under the umbrella of fiscal stimulus, the uh, labor support. Do they call, directly call? They're basically saying, you know, here, uh, look, we've done all we can and we need help and, you know, and keep, you know, and more and more and yeah. more. I think this, the more vocal is um, the ECB. I mean, if we can go back to the days of Mario Draghi before Christine Lagarde took over the number one spot and it reached the stage where by written into every communique, you know, the press statement was a fact that it's hugely important for those governments with you know, basically small fiscal deficits or even a fiscal surplus. So with room to come out and reflate fiscal policy should do so. Now, that was particularly aimed at the likes of Germany, obviously the main powerhouse within the eurozone. And that became you know, written into the statement, not necessarily quite the same wording every month or every other month, but to all intents and purposes, it was sending out the same message. And Lagarde again last week during her statement was very much you know battling away not to, i mean she didn't i think she she's very loath to come out and say well monetary policy can't do anything more because then you're giving yourself a real a real problem but she will try and say it's hugely important that the fiscal side is helping the monetary side and um, so yes within the eurozone you get that a lot within the uk i think there's probably more talk between the uh, the bank of england and what's happening with the government to the extent that you know one of the big sort of stimulus packages we had coming through during the earlier days of the coronavirus we saw the bank and the Treasury announcing various policy measures at the same time. And the coordinated impact there, I think, upon financial markets was, if you like, much more successful than some of the ad hoc announcements we've had coming out of individual national governments within the Eurozone at one time and then you have the ECB at another time. So I think the idea of policy cooperation and coordination, um, it certainly sends a much more positive signal to investors and financial markets in general. Speaking of uh, cooperation, uh, last week you were talking about the Europe 
uh, and its commitment to the recovery plan and Hungary's uh, uh, opposition. What's the latest? Well, as I understand at the moment, I mean, I think they're still talking about it. So this um, rescue plan is still at the moment a bit of a logjam. Um, I think it's being voted on by a number of national parliaments. They certainly haven't all done it yet. But of course, until and unless the um, Hungary is prepared to give it the nod, then it doesn't matter anyway. And I think that's why we've seen within the last, what, two to three weeks, um, Germany's come out and announced its own another several billion fiscal reflation plan. Uh, Macron out of France. So President Macron came out about two, three weeks ago now and announced a 100 billion euro rescue plan on top of the what best part of, I don't know, 200 billion or so the French have already spent. So individual national governments in Europe are still basically having to do their own thing because it's still proving far too difficult to get all the individual countries acting as one when it Mm. comes to putting together a united policy front. Talking of um, United Policy Fronts and whatever, I suppose I have to mention the latest on the Brexit side, uh, which is turning to be something of a complete disaster at the moment. I mean, for a lot of last year and before that, we're talking about the impact of Brexit upon the pound and how basically Mm -hmm. what came out of Brexit determined the pound. Well, Mm -hmm. the latest twist here. Um, is for people who haven't seen it is that uh, Boris Johnson and co in the UK government um, have decided to introduce what they call an internal market bill which we refer to as IBM nothing to do with the company <clears throat> now this effectively seeks to nullify some of the key elements in the Brexit withdrawal agreement so this is the international treaty that Boris Johnson himself signed off on last October but, but it, wasn't impl- it was never implemented into law Yes, that put it into law. It was. This is this is the key part. So this is the actual so Brexit. He, he's, he, this Soros. He's on. He's on. He's on the record saying he wants to break the law. Or he, <laughs> well, of course, it comes down to some people may semantics, but it, for the, for the the law uh, cognoscenti amongst us. Um, this really is quite important. So the bottom line to this is that he's maintaining, which I think, strictly speaking, is kind of true, that UK sovereignty over UK law is paramount. And he wants to make some changes to the so-called Northern Ireland Protocol. Essentially, this this covers uh, trading goods between uh, Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom or Great Britain, I suppose I should call it. Because the problem is going back to and we talked about this so many times in the past is that Northern Ireland is no longer part of the European Union, whereas Southern Ireland is. And the last thing that anyone wanted to see was a renewed border going across Southern Ireland versus Northern Ireland, as a result of which was this Northern Ireland protocol, which kind of meant that would be checks on the UK side uh, over goods and services going between the UK mainland and going into Northern Ireland. Now the UK government's come out and said, well, look, we don't like this because essentially it means we're losing some control over what will be our internal market um, once we get to the end of this year and the EU transition period has ended. So basically, um, Boris Johnson is saying we want to have total control of what's happening to the UK market. And, and by so the that, way, so that means moving up the border. Well, the, the question is, what happens to the border? I mean, because the thing is, I mean, what's going to happen effectively is saying that the kind of checks they're supposed to be putting on goods coming into the UK or indeed from UK going going into Northern Ireland um, isn't going to be there. So as far as the, the EU is concerned, its single market now has got a big hole in it, which is going to be driven through by whoever. 
because it's no longer a closed market because there's no official boundary. So the EU is hugely cheesed off, let's say, about this. Um, but not only that, now, I mean, the key question, the broader issue is that by effectively having signed the withdrawal treaty and now saying they want to change it, the UK is breaking mm-hmm. international law. Well, it's, it's also good, you know, to negotiate with someone who's who doesn't, you know, who turns around and then does something else. Well, and- this is it, because as folks who I'm sure will remember, last week we saw the conclusion of the eighth official round of EU-UK trade talks about the future of a trading relationship between the EU and the UK once we get to the end of this transition period at the end of this year. Now, this is so while this is still taking place and it seems as if both sides have kind of given themselves a deadline now of around about the middle of October, if this thing is going to be agreed and ratified in time for the end of 2020 you know these talks are still ongoing and now you've got boris johnson's effectively saying oh by the way we're not actually want to stick to the agreement we had when we left the eu in the first place so it's going to be a protracted period of well to start with um of battles i suspect within uk parliament now Yesterday in the House of Commons, um, Johnson's his new bill, his IBM bill, uh, received um, the backing of 340 votes against 263 who voted against. So it sounds a pretty easy passage. That was about his uh, election. Uh, yeah, he's got well. He's, he, I mean, strictly speaking, he's, he's got a, he's got an 80 seat majority. So normally you would think he could push through whatever legislation he wants. However, a number and an increasingly large number of senior conservative MPs, um, as well as a lot of the rank and file, have made it patently obvious that they are scared stiff about what this could do um, to the UK's international standing, reputation and everything else. So he's got the first reading through, but if you like, that's the easy bit. What will happen now will be that I suspect there'll be various amendments that worried MPs will try to attach to this original bill in such a way that ostensibly, you know, it's, I won't say it's not worth the paper it's written on, but it'll get rid of all the big concerns about you know, undermining international law. Um, you can bet your bottom dollar or pound for whatever it's worth these days is that when it goes to the house of lords they're going to throw it out and um, they are scared stiff about some of the implications of this what it's going to mean for the uk standing internationally so i think we're kind of in almost back to where we were a year or so ago when it was all about oh is it going to be a hard brexit or a soft brexit and the pound would mm-hmm. go up down according and and what we're going to see now i think is a similar sort of thing if it looks like this bill is going to go through as it stands at the moment international investors are going to be none too impressed what's the bill's what's the name of the bill it's called it, it's called the internal um, the internal where are we market bill, so IBM for short. Now it should be said one of the one I suppose one of the, the near term sort of dates for the diary so to speak is that the EU's initial response is well clearly they're furious about the whole thing, but they've said right we'll give the UK until the end of this month to withdraw the bill, or they're going to take us to international court. Well, so we, how long how long could that drag on? Yeah, I they, have no what, idea. Anything anything like that can go on for an awfully but, long but time. It's the end of the year, isn't it? When is the pullout? Well, but, yeah, the de- the deadline for currently the UK is operating in a tra- they call this transition period, which, to all intents and purposes, means that we're still operating under EU rules while the UK you know, extracts itself you know, properly from the European Union. And, and so no we're not. Po- sorry. There's no stated deadline. 
Well, the deadline for the transition period is the end of this year. So yeah. as of 1st of January next year, uh, and Johnson has refused to ask for an extension of a transition period. So unless something happens, as of the 1st of January, where are we, 2021, the UK will be out on its own, either with a trade deal, if they somehow manage to agree one, or without one which should be extremely bad for the UK economy. It also be extremely bad for the Eurozone economy as well. But that's the way it would be. Oh, I have a question. You had mentioned that, uh, and this is, it's going to, you know, betray my lack of, of, uh, of, uh, of, of proper knowledge, but um, the, the House of Lords actually wields power. It's not some kind of a ceremonial uh, it's, rubber stamp yeah. of some kind. It's, a, it's, a, it's the second house in the UK. So it's, a, it's the House of Commons which does the bulk of the work. But um, the major bills in the House of Commons get a part, get passed across to the House of Lords for their approval. Now, what can happen is that the House of Lords, for whatever reason, don't like it, and they send it back to the Commons to be we redrawn, amended, wherever it may be. In practice, um, under normal times, any changes tend to be pretty small and you know, it's, it's really neither here nor there. But the occasions, and this could be one, where the suggested amendments from the Lords will be vast um, and the government won't be happy about it. So there could be a potential protracted period of to and throwing between the two houses um, before it actually happens. So let me just—it's a little bit of a digression, of course. But so the House of Lords is this is an, an ancestral element from the nobility, and it, it uh, kind of is, yes. Although there's there's new lords um, who are named every year by the so, government. And, and the government, the government uh, appoints. And do you have to be, a, a, you know, have a, a title or or, or well, a you will receive property it. or? You will receive a title if you become a member of the House of Lords. So, for example, you'll quite often get heads of British industry who will be given a peerage. Uh -huh, so instead uh -huh. of being Mr. Jones, you'll become Lord Jones. And well, you what about the, like something like the head of the Salvation Army or something like that? Do they... Well, unlikely, but this is something which has been sort of a major sort of battle area between, um, let's say, the right and the left, but say the more traditional Tory voters and the more traditional Labour or you know, certainly left of centre voters as to why uh, this particular group of society should be given, if you like, an additional say on top of what the people are saying who are represented in the House of Commons. So there's been various um various periods when talk arises about either the abolition of the House of Lords or greatly reducing the power of the House of Lords. And at some point, it does seem as time goes forward, it, it will change. But for the moment, at least, the Lords still carry a certain amount of power. Wow. That was thank you for that. That was so it's it's, it's going to be very, very interesting because quite simply when this when news of this first came out, I think we just touched on it because breaking news on the last podcast. Most people simply couldn't believe it. And I think you know, a lot of people think oh, this is just politicking. This is Boris Johnson pushing you know, using the last chance he has to try and convince the European Union that if they don't come out with a good trade deal, he's going to go down this route. But if it is, it, it's brinkmanship at the extreme. All right. OK, well, I think we've probably been prattling on for far too long. Um, so we will end it there. I say do keep an eye on sterling because if you're looking for a volatile currency at the moment, then the say for not so good pound is probably the one to pick. OK, so from Mark and myself, thanks as always for listening. 
we'll be back next week um but before then do remember to keep up to date with all the key market moving data and events in a tonic global economic calendar stay safe and we'll see you next time bye for now <laughs>